Hey, it's Andrew. The 2023-24 season of Portland Arts and Lectures has just been announced. Speakers include Sadie Smith, Mary Beard, David Gran, Charles Yu, and Amy Nezukumotato. To learn more about the season and how to join us at the Arlene Schitzer Concert Hall for five inspiring evenings, visit literary-arts.org. Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your host, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Today's program is a conversation on storytelling for change, environmental racism and literature, which took place at the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, better known as AWP's, 2023 Annual Conference and Book Fair in Seattle, Literary Arts partnered with our friends at the Lyceum Agency to feature two amazing writers, Kiese Lehman and Mbolo Mbue. Kiese Lehman is from Jackson, Mississippi. His writing is always personal, often political, and balances humor with uncommon perceptiveness. He is perhaps best known for his essays, including the collection How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, and for his award-winning memoir, Heavy. He is a MacArthur Fellow, and he has also written a novel, Long Division, and he's at work on a long poem, a horror novel, a children's book, and a personal narrative. Imbolo Mbue is the author of Behold the Dreamers, an Oprah's book club selection. Her most recent novel is How Beautiful We Were, about the collision of a small African village and an American oil company. Mbue grew up in a seaside town with an oil refinery in Cameroon, and the book is inspired in part by her childhood fascination with the people who rose up against corporate greed and systems of injustice while drawing on more contemporary social and environmental justice movements. Lehman and Mbue are so clearly fans of each other and have so much respect for each other's work. They talk about the limits and the space provided by fiction versus nonfiction, drawing on their own childhood experiences as they think about environmental racism, the role of artists as activists, and so much more. The event opens with Kiese reading from his forthcoming picture book, City Summer, Country Summer, followed by Mbolo sharing a selection from her novel, How Beautiful We Were. I guess I will start off with um, Kiese doing a, a little reading and then I'll do a reading after. Okay, uh, thank y'all so much for being here. Uh, I feel so lucky to be up here with you. I wanna thank Literary Arts, I wanna thank Lyceum for making it possible for us to connect again. Sorry. Um, on this road. So I'm just going to read a, um, the text from this picture book that I have coming out called City Summer, Country Summer. Black boys from Mississippi, no black boys from New York. When we were young, their parents sent them down south one summer. We were afraid of calling them beautiful as we were of calling them by their real names. If they were Chaka, Marcus, Stefan, Akil, or Damon, we called them New York. Whether we were from Jackson, Memphis, Birmingham, or Atlanta, they called us country. They were quick, we were fast, we were strong, they were tough. They talked with their hands, we listened with our chest. We were Mississippi black boys visiting grandmama. They were New York black boys visiting Mama Lara. All of us were they, all of us were them. And by the end of one summer, Saturday, New York black boys and Mississippi black boys wandered through the woods, the woods and coulds, through the kind of freeing friendship that is love. This was five years before that stranger at Battlefield Park called us slurs, rhyming triggers, and figures with no fathers at home. 11 years before the police placed guns to our head for throwing invisible rocks of crack out of the window. Six months after our teacher threatened to hold us back because we refused to write ourselves out of the assignments. Two weeks after we tried to humiliate Octavia in the lunchroom to make ourselves feel harder, impenetrable, like real men. 16 hours and 14 minutes after we sprinted down Old Morton Road behind the mosquito man, unknowingly sucking down toxin sprinkles that we spent a lifetime unable to sweat out. Every weekday, summer morning, when grandmama went to work at the chicken plant, we jumped off the porch of her pink shotgun house and sprinted 20 yards to Mama Lars. 
Nothing separated Grandmom and Mama Laura's house other than the largest, greenest garden in Forest, Mississippi. This Saturday morning, we were out on Grandmama's porch getting our cardboard sled ready to slide down the underpass of Highway 35 when New York walked up on the porch shirtless, wearing what looked like some off-brand buddies and some fluorescent wristbands. We were behind the house when we heard Marco coming from the front side of the, of the garden. Polo, we said. Marco, there they go, we whispered to one another. Polo, Marco, man, where this fool at? Polo, Polo, I think they bread ain't all the way done. Polo, Marco. We looked down every row in that garden looking for New York until we got to the front on Mama Lara's side. Marco, we heard from where we just left. Polo, Polo. We walked back to the middle of the garden, afraid that New York had been taken by Wayne Williams, white folks, or white folks' God. Something in those central Mississippi woods reminded New York of the language of home, being reminded of home so far away from his newborn sister, Kay Catherine, the bodegas, the apartments that scraped the clouds, the fire hydrants, and the actual blocks, terrified or satisfied New York. Whether it was absolute fear or exquisite satisfaction, wandering through the cool spots in those Mississippi woods was far too much for New York's body. We didn't speak this. New York did not speak this, but our bodies knew. In the middle of the garden, we felt a forceful wind getting closer to us, and when we turned around, New York tackled us and laughed so hard as we all tumbled on a roll of my grandmama's butter beans. On the ground of that garden covered in vegetables and dirt, coated in so much laughter, I want to say that the Mississippi and New York and our black boy bodies were indistinguishable from each other, but that would be a lie. We absolutely contrasted, but the sight and taste and smells of our contrast felt like safeness, not safety. Safeness and safeness sounded like love. When we stood up, the rain dropped thicker. Grandmom and Mama Lara were standing on the outside of the garden, both pillars of our safeness who both longed for more safeness themselves. Each of them was spraying us, not with sprinkles of toxic insecticides, but with browning water from their water hoses that might one day, if we're lucky, turn the color of vegetable oil. If y'all don't get y'all behind from behind our garden, Mama Lara said laughing, we know some. We all knew something too. And what we knew was more than short trailers and shotgun houses, more than magnolias and pine trees, more than semi-trucks filled with chickens headed to be slaughtered at the chicken plant, way more than insecticides and brown and water slicker than lotion. We knew another way for black boys in America to say, I love you and I am sorry and thank you for experimenting with me. And we kept saying, I love you and I am sorry and thank you for experimenting with me in as many different ways as we could that Saturday in the summer until it was time for New York to go on back home. Thank y'all. Thank we, you. <laughs> can, we, can we please, please, please hear from you now? <laughs> My reading also has to do with water a little bit. So my novel is set, um, How Beautiful We Were, is set in a fictional African village that the water has been poisoned from oil exploration. This company named Pextin has come to this village, discovered oil, and during the process of drilling for oil, there's been a lot of contamination. And in this scene I'm about to read, the oil company sends representatives to come to the village, to talk to the villagers, to sort of assure them that they're going to fix all of the poisoning. So this is some part of what happens during that village meeting between the oil company and the villagers. Please, you must do something. One of our aunts cried to the leader. Her baby limped in her arms. It was a poison. The baby was too pure for the filth in the village well's water. The toxins that had seeped into it from Pextin's field. One of our fathers asked if Pextin could in the meantime send us clean water at least for the youngest children. The leader shook his head. He'd heard this question before. He took a deep breath as he prepared to give his standard response. Perkstein was not in the business of providing water, 
But out of concern for us, he would talk to the people at headquarters. They would take our request to the government office in charge of water supply and what, hear what they had to say. Didn't the leader give that same response last time? One of our grandfathers asked, how long does it take for messages to move from office to office? A very long time, the leader replied. Some of our mothers began crying. We wish we could dry their eyes, their tears. Our young men started shouting. We'll march to the capital and burn down your headquarters, they said. We'll hurt you the same way you're hurting us. The Pakistan men simply smiled in response. They knew the, the young men wouldn't do it. We all knew that the president would have our young men exterminated if they dared to hang Pakistan, and our village would be left further enfeebled. We'd seen it happen already. Early the previous year, we had watched as a group of six men set out for the capital, water and dried food packed in their raffia bags. Led by the father of one of us, the group promised the village that they would return with nothing less than a guarantee from the government and practicing that our land will be restored to what it was before the oil company arrived. Day after day, we waited alongside our friends for the return of our father and the other men, all of whom were our neighbors and relatives, three of whom had sick children. When they did not return after 10 days, we began fearing that they'd been imprisoned, or worse, a second group of men traveled to the capital to search for them and bring, home, bring them back, but they came back empty-handed. Four months later, the Pakistan men arrived for the first village meeting. When our elders asked the leader at the first meeting where he thought our vanished men might be, he told them that he knew nothing. Pakistan did not involve itself with the whereabouts of citizens of our country, unless, of course, they were its employees. On that evening in October of 1980, still smiling, the leader reminded us once more that Pakistan was our friend and that though we had to make sacrifices, someday we'll look back and be proud that the company had taken an interest in our land. He asked if we had any more questions. We did not. Whatever hope we'd had at the onset of that meeting had flown away and taken with it our last words. With a final smile, he thanked us for coming. The round one and the sick one began packing up their briefcases. Their driver was waiting by our school in a black Land Rover, ready to take them back to the capital, to their homes and lives, overflowing with clean necessities and superfluities we could never conjure. Our village leader stood up and thanked us too. He wished us a good night and reminded us to return for another meeting in eight weeks. He told us to be well till then. Thank you. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I'm going to start off by asking you a question. <laughs> okay. Uh, I am just fascinated by your work. I mean, you are just such an incredible voice, and I am fascinated by the fact that we both, you know, explored children in our mm -hmm. work. What you just read about the children from the city and the country. So let's talk about children. Why is it important for you to show Mississippi kids playing in lead water or enjoying getting sprayed by insecticide? What is it about children that you like, like hoping to talk about? That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm so happy to be up here with you again. I just want to say, yeah. I might be playing myself, but I feel like our work complements each other because mm -hmm. really what that means is you're able to do something that I cannot do. Mm. And I want to ask you about this in a second. But okay. the, one of the things is that I can't do is I don't know how to give point of view or actually like rounded perspective to the corporations mm. or the evildoers or mm. whatever. So in the absence of that, what I try to do sometimes is like as much as I can state that, you know, environmental degradation, intentional environmental degradation, intentional environmental racism is all through the place I grew up. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think I just try to spend a lot more time thinking about the ways that we ritualized that Mm. environmental racism. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think there's one piece that could be written about the person who drove the insecticide truck up and down my mm -hmm. road. Mm -hmm. We could talk about the people who own the water company. We could talk more about the way in the town I grew up in, in Jackson and in Forest, where my grandmother grew up, the water was brown. Other side of the town, the water was clean. And what I want to do in my writing often is just kind of like understand that that is a fact. Sometimes that fact is carried through the subtext, but I just really want to spend a lot of time sort of ritualizing the play. Mm. And that to me is just so, it's so awesome and devastating that we ran behind insecticide trucks right. just 
wanting to get wet right. by insecticide. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it's awesome and it's awful and it's beautiful. Similarly, like you know, Mississippi is like 106 degrees in the summer with the humidity. There's something so terrifying, but also so awesome mm. about drinking brown water out that water hose with your friends. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I wish I could do what you could do because I feel like the text would actually be fuller. But one of the questions I have for you was like, how do you will yourself, or maybe it's a skill question, but how do you will yourself often to describe the motivations right. of the people who some would call the corporate entities, some would call evil, right. and other people would just call, you know, the capitalist. Right. How do you at once show the frailty of the people who are harmed mm-hmm. and also like the tenderness in a way of the people right. who do the harming? Right, right. No, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, your work is nonfiction. Right. And my, I do fiction. And it's funny because when I read your work, I think, oh my God, I could never do that. Nonfiction comes really hard for me. And for me, it's a lot easier to, to put everything that I question in the form of a story. And as a novelist, right, you have to look at the full picture. This is a story about a group of villagers suffering from this pollution, but it's also about the people who do the pollution. Absolutely. Like, who are they? What is their story? Like, how did they you know, become these people who right. think it's just okay to, you know, or maybe they've been looking to, like the person driving the insecticide truck that has that. Maybe it's just a job, right? right. They don't really think about the consequences. And so my, my job is to look at the full picture and also realize that this People that we don't like, the bad guys, the capitalists or whatever, the corporations, like, they're also human, yeah. right? My hope was to, say, to tell the, the story of everybody. I mean, when you read this, this whole novel, if you read it, you realize that the villagers are not so pure either. Right. You know, they're right. not this, oh, right. we poor little African villagers and we're just wonderful. Everybody is flawed, right? That's what we know as writers. We know that everybody is flawed. So, to do their story justice, I have to show their, you know, their shortcomings also. Yes. Just as I have to show the wonderful sides about the corporation. Right. And that was my hope in keeping the story balanced. Yeah. So that I am not, you know, and people say to me when they read my novel, oh, are you an environmentalist? Are you an activist? I think, you know, that term belongs more to people like yourself <laughs> who are actually at the oh, forefront of that. Yeah. I think that for me, as a novelist, it's, it's simply just to tell the story. I cannot say, oh, I'm trying to champion a cause. Uh-huh. Because that is not my place, you know, so much. Right. Because if I start having an agenda, the story is going to suffer. Yes. So it is important for me to have no agenda whatsoever. Yes. So when I don't have an agenda, then I can tell the story without trying to take anybody's side. But I'm also interested in whether or not you were influenced by Cameroonians who had agendas, who were right. trying to fight back. So, so I, I, love right. that, I, I love that paradise where, like, you know, I'm coming into this work with right. the agenda to humanize. Right. But you were very clear that you were also inspired by right. Cameroonians who were right. who had specific agendas. Can you talk right. about that? Right, that's it's true, it's true. Yeah. And it's, and I think Smody mentioned that I I grew up very fascinated by people who you know were trying to do something, activists, environmentalists, dissidents, whoever they were, I yeah. was fascinated. So and as a child, like, these people were my rock stars. You know, if, I mean, part of this story was inspired by environmentalists in Nigeria, which is a neighboring country to Cameroon, and these environmentalists were, were hanged to death because they were taking a stand against an oil company. And as a child, that really bothered me. I mean, I remember like, having sleepless nights because right. I couldn't understand how people would be hanged to death you know, for asking for clean water. Right. But when you start writing, right, and you start... Um, going, you know, looking at the world, you know, you start looking at issues of globalization, mm. or capitalism, of all of these issues, you realize that there's no black and white. Right. So even though I came from being inspired by these people, I also, I mean, even if you look at it in real life, you think about the people who inspired the main character in my novel, you know, like the, the Mandela's and the Dr. King's and yeah. all of the great people, they were humans and they right. were flawed. So even though they inspired me, I still have to paint those people right, as humans, and I think that that is what helped me to say, even though in my heart of hearts, I very, very, very believe in environmental causes, and I live my life in those principles, when I sit down to write, I am not trying to tell anybody anything. (laughs) (laughs) That is not my job, you know, I am not here to change your mind, you know, like what great literature has done for me is to ask me questions and let me figure it out for myself. And I think that is what I hope to do. And and it kind of leads me to a question for you also. 
a lot of your work has to do with gardens, you know, because I, in my novel, there's um, where the oil company is, um, is, is based, it's called The Gardens. Mm-hmm. So, so I, really, our, we should just write one book together. <laughs> um, but you also have a lot of, you know, gardens, you know, we see children and grandmothers, you know, searching for themselves in gardens. And so I want to talk about your favorite garden experience. And did you ever get lost in, you know, in a garden and like your favorite characters? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I did get lost in gardens. You know, I, I wrote this, uh, this thing that's going to be like a, a, a kid's book. I wrote it for the New York Times um, 2020. And, and they, they sent me these amazing photographs, all these black boys in New York. And they wanted me to describe what I saw. And all I saw was like us playing in my grandmother's garden, mm. you know, which is eight states away from New York City. And luckily they allowed me to put that in a piece. But we played Marco Polo. We had no pool. You know what I'm saying? We didn't, we didn't have no pool in far as Mississippi. But we played Marco Polo in my grandmama's garden because my grandmother's garden was the biggest, most lush garden mm-hmm. in the town. Mm-hmm. And I think that my grandmother's garden was so lush, and this is connected to what you do too, because of her work for a chicken plant slash mm-hmm. corporation. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother, I'm writing about this in this new book now, my grandmother was one of these people who grew up working the land, which often means Mississippi grew up raising animals and killing animals, but she was also someone who never, never, never was okay killing chickens. I saw my grandmother mm-hmm. kill pigs, I saw mm-hmm. my grandmother, she worked at a chicken plant, she used to kill chickens for a living, but she would come home and she would every day say, I had to kill them little chickens. Mm. I had to kill them little chickens. Mm. And so I'm not saying she was personifying them, and obviously she kept killing them for like 20 years, mm. but <laughs> she felt something about that. Mm. And when she came home, you know, it, it's almost cliche now, but mm. you know, my grandmother put a lot of what she couldn't explore beautifully in that plant into that garden. Mm-hmm. And we ate that food, and we planted that food, and when she wasn't around, we played hide and go seek mm. in the in the garden. And I just thought that uh, you know, trying to remind people who love New York so much that that there's some there's some mystery um, down south for for, for that particular um, New York Times piece. <laughs> right. uh, it made a lot of sense to right. me. But does does the garden like represent? Because I mean, when you're talking about it, I'm thinking about like. Just sort of purity, you know, like right. a lot of, you know, like what we do, it's, it's that, you know, it's about dirtiness. It's about yes. things having been dirty and yes. solid and been destroyed. When you talk about the garden, I think about the purity. Like, is it like mm. some sort of celebration of this place where everything is clean and, you know, and that how things could be, yeah. you know, if there was more justice? Or, yes. I mean, I, and I think you'll, you'll feel this too. I mean, it, it I mean, as a kid, it felt pure. Right. Right? I mean, when you get older and you understand, you know, you understand a little bit more, it, it becomes less pure. But, like, for me growing up, my grandmother was the, most, was the kindest person in the world. She would give you everything, mm. everything. Like, part of her pushback against what we call, you know, Jim Crow in Mississippi was, like, she believed she should share with everybody. But consequently, you know, on the flip side, you don't steal from her. Right. Or you get shot. <laughs> Right. And you particularly don't steal from her garden. Right. And I just think that mean, that meant so much. You know right. what I'm saying? I saw my grandmama go off on people more when they stole cucumbers and mm. than when they stole her purse. <laughs> and like part of that was because she planted that's, that cucumber that's right. and tended right. to that cucumber oh, and would you. give you that cucumber if you right. said, can I have right. it? Don't steal and, it. Yeah. So like you don't, you don't have to steal. But I'm, I'm so taken by this, by this notion of you're not trying to show people anything because I'm interested in what role then ethics and morality play in the right. work. Because some people who read your work like me mm-hmm. and some people who read your work right. read a kind of morality or ethic right. into right. it. What do you think about that? Right. So I just want to say a point to your grandmother, you know, the, being aware of the chicken, trust, you know, all of that. Part of writing this novel make me stop eating meat, you know? Oh, so, for real? Yeah. I haven't eaten meat in 28 years, Because I went to the chicken plant oh, Somebody's for, for two happy hours. I don't eat meat, thank you. I don't know, you know, I think part of it was like just being aware of violence, right. different kinds of violence, and the level of violence I am committing. <laughs> That's real. And so I had to think a lot about that. And also other things that have happened in the world that yes. made me question that. But, but to your, your question about me not having an agenda, right? Going yeah. back to that. So think about the case. Think about your favorite books, right? Think right. about the books that affected you. Do you think that the writer was trying to get you to think or feel a certain way? I'm going to say no, because I think you right. want me to say no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, I think no, but I think I hope so. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> I don't, I, feel you go ahead. I don't know. I yeah, don't yeah, know. Yeah. I just, I, I, to me, it's a definite no. Yeah. Because 
I, I, okay, I don't know. I have many one, one million books that I love. But let me think about probably a book your friend, Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, right? Mm-hmm. That's a book that probably people read in school. Was she trying to say anything? Maybe she was. But me as a reader, I, I like to go with a blank, you know, as a blank slate and to not be forced in any direction. Right. I think that you have to trust people that when they hear the story, that if their hearts are open, a seed will be planted, right. whatever kind of seed. And again, it comes back to interpretation. People will interpret your work in a million different ways that you never intended. Right. I mean, I have had people come to me and say things. I was like, what? Really? Right, you see that. <laughs> That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> right. <because Right. laughs> I don't. So for me to start going out there and trying to make that point, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Like, I would rather focus on the story right. and say, you want to read the story and think oil is wonderful and pollution is okay? Let's, okay, fine. Because the fact is that people will argue that, you know, there's a collateral damage for most things in the world and, you know, this is just what happens. I like to say that I am not a priest. I am not a rabbi. I am not a professor. You know, I think that the people whose duty it is to, you know, to do those things. I feel you. Certain things are above my pay grade as a novelist. (laughs) And that is what, I don't know, maybe I'm a bit, a little bit, protective or defensive of myself because I don't want to do that. I just, it's not who I am as a writer. Right. That everything I have to say can be told in the form of a story and that everybody will come to it in their own way and interpret it. And I have been given the wonderful gift of people coming to me and saying that, wow, this story made me more empathetic. It made me consider what it's like to be an immigrant. It made me think about my carbon footprint. It made me think about sure. other things. But I would rather do that than say, okay, I'm going to have a story that makes going to make people become... Now, when I give lectures, it's different. When I give right, a lecture, right. I go on and on, and I say, right. please don't, you know, kill animals or whatever. Right. <laughs> but when I sit down to tell a story, ethics and morality is not really my concern so mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. It, it, is, it is just exploring, you know, humans. And all of the issues that come around, in, like in this novel, whether it's environment or colonialism or yeah. globalization, that all comes after, you know, right. the story stands in front. And, and I, but I do admire your own take on it, you know. And, and, and I wonder if so much of that, what some of us get in your, or see in your work, and I don't want to impose uh, misreadings, but I wonder if some of that is because you do such a thorough job of exploring the ethics, morality of the human beings. Mm, mm. And I think, I think thorough explorations of morality in, you know, flesh, mm. I think give people the idea that, like, there's an agenda. Mm, mm. And, and, and what do you, is that an agenda? Is, is the belief that all human beings have texture? Right. That, is that an agenda? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I think that's an agenda. Okay. That, that, can, be, that, that, can, be, that can be explored and, 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 and crafted a lot of different ways. But whether or not you think it's agenda or not, I, I just want to say it's something that I love in your work. Like, I, I, you, you, you find humans with texture, point of view, wonder, right. and absolute, like, failure. And, 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 and whenever I try to write novels, one of the reasons that it takes so long is because <laughs> I'm like, you know, every character can't have point of view. Right, you know right, what I mean? It's right. almost like an extension of my grandmother believing like little chickens on a f- hook have a point of view. But like, I find myself wanting to um, explore every single point of view of every single character. And I think sometimes that can deaden the, right. the actual craft. So I'm actually interested for you in like a craft question. Do you, do you have the world that you're writing into in mind when you start, like with the, with the last novel, did you have the world? Mm. Did you start with a, uh, a premise? Did you start with mm. a character? Mm. Right, so I think it begins with a question, right? It's always a question. Mm-hmm. And for me, because I was this child who was very, I always questioned the world. I was always like, you know, why is there so much injustice? Why right. do, you know, corporations do this? Or why do, you know, we, I, live, I grew up in a dictatorship and my country, we've had the same president for 41 years, right? So when you grow up in a dictatorship and you grow up in a place where there really is no democracy and oppo- opposition leaders and journalists are being thrown into prison left and right, and you're a sensitive person, you know, you, as a child, you know, that bothers you. So when I decided to start writing, I just wanted to question that, and the world didn't come first, right? It was more about what is it like to stand up for something? Right. What is it like to dedicate yourself to a cause and you're willing to like even give your life to that? 
and that is what had that came. Now, this, this novel took me, I don't know, I started writing in 2002, and it didn't come out in 2021. <laughs> so, so it was a very long period. <laughs> and, in, and in that period, there was a lot that also happened, right? Part of this novel was inspired by, you know, similar to your experience, it was inspired by what happened in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. And I think, again, we, you know, the, maybe the issue of water and black children is something that, like, we, you know, we think about both of us a lot, but I think part of what happened is that, you know, I thought about what it's like to be a child, um, to be a child and, like, the kind of child that I was, you know, questioning, questioning adults around you who are not doing enough to protect you. Right. And I think that that is where that came from. Everything else, you know, built after that. Yeah. But my main goal was to pay an homage in a way. I mean, maybe that's an agenda because I do admire the people like the characters in my novel who fought up against this whole company. Mm-hmm. But my goal was to be part of a movement, which I've never been, right? I've never, I don't know, you've never seen me joining some big protest movement yeah. about anything. Yeah. I'm not one of those people, and, but I admire them. Right. And this right. was a way of saying, I want to spend time with you guys and to get to experience it and to celebrate you guys. And that refers to people like you because you do, you know, the work, like you are there. <laughs> like, when people say, oh, I'm like, no, the people out there who you should be celebrating for doing this work because you, unlike me, that I stand behind my characters, you don't stand behind anything. Oh, I, oh you do. I, oh, you do. That's sweet. I mean, I mean, but, but, but you are more like. There. Yeah, I feel you. Right yeah. about that, right? I mean, and tell me why this is important to you. You know, I mean, yeah. the, your grandmother was a big part of it, right? Let's talk about your grandmother and about mm. more about her working at the at chicken plant and how all of that like shaped who Casey Lemon became. That's a lot. Uh, <laughs> I think the way my grandmother worked. And I think my, the way my grandmother explored, explored pleasure, mm-hmm. without that, I don't have a career. Mm-hmm. And, and so to me, I'm always trying to explore like the line, if there is a line between intimacy and terror. And you often see that in parental child relationships and, and all kind of relationships. But I think we see that in corporate like worker relationships. You know what I mean? My grandmother was seen as like the illest black woman on Old Morton Road because mm. she worked in a chicken plant. Mm. And that meant like all her sisters who she went to church with thought she was the one because at 4.30 she could wake up, go throw chickens into boiling water, take mm. them out, put them on a hook, take their guts out mm. for eight hours straight, mm. well, four hours, come home, watch Young and the Restless, go back, take, wow. cut some more, <laughs> and then come home, right? And yeah. so like that's what I'm saying about what your work does is that I rarely think about my grandmother as like a cog in a corporation because we call it plant. (laughs) We call it the plant work. But when you look at where we come from, forests, I write about the uh, forests across the street from my grandmother's house often. One of the reasons those forests don't exist anymore is because of that exact chicken plant. Right. Right. So like that chicken plant and by proxy, my grandmother's work aided in destroying the forest across the street from us that we played in and found so much pleasure and actually aided in destroying her own garden. So I couldn't even see that until I read your work. You know what I mean? So so, so, so I'm saying like my my grandmother is complicated and and, and whatever, but she also thankfully and terribly worked at a corporation. Right, right, right. At the bottom, you know what I'm saying? But without that, like, we don't have no Christmas presents. My mom and them don't go to Jackson State. So I'm just interested in the paradox, which is what you explore so much. Would you say that, and and this is, you know, so your grandmother was, suffered from the injustice double over, because not only was she, like, you know, part of the community that paid the price, but she was also used as part of that system that put that community at a disadvantage. Absolutely. She was used because she was black. Right. And she was great at her job, right. I think, because she was a black woman, but she could not be anything else but a buttonhole slicer right. because she was a black woman. Right. Because other black men who didn't slice nearly as good as her moved up. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So, and when I'm telling stories, I would rather tell that part. Right. As opposed to the part of my grandmother being a cog in a corporate machine right. that ultimately led to my being on stage with you right, right now. Right, right. I think that's the hard right. part. But, I mean, and we have to own that. I mean, that is the thing about, you know, which I think about as people, as people of colors. And there's a character in my novel like that where, you know, he, he thinks that he's helping his village, right. but at the same time, he's, playing, he's being played against his own people. Right. <laughs> you know, and when it comes to the environment, for example, like, the effects are broader. Yes. Because... A lot of us end up, you know, um, suffering the consequences of a certain environment. Maybe not, you know, those of us who live in certain communities, but we do. And it's, 
not black and white who is good and who is bad because your grandmother had reason. She right. needed to send, get her son to become the renowned, you know, acclaimed mm. writer that he is today. <laughs> and that is the price she paid. Mm. So, I mean, I'm so happy you said that because that is why, like, I shy away from yeah. putting people into categories. Absolutely. You know, because right. how are you going to put anybody in a category right. when everything is so intertwined? Absolutely. Right? Is, is it possible to not put people in categories um, narratively? Well, obviously it is, because you do that. But I'm interested in the, in the role of representation, right? right? Like, when people introduce me, they say, uh, black Southern writer. Right. I've read a lot of people introduce <laughs> you as African. That's right. Right? Yeah. I definitely feel some desire to represent right. black Southernness. Right. But it's a lot to, to represent <laughs> yes. a continent. But yes. do you feel, do you feel like the weight of representation when doing this work? Like, right. like do you right. feel like I am, I need to represent Africa? Yeah. Because I'm asking because I know that's the way often people... Yeah. No, I don't. Thank you. I don't. Yeah. No, I, I don't because, and I don't, you know, I am also uncomfortable with that. Yes. And for whatever reason, the world really likes to do that too. The other, you know, mm -hmm. you know, you don't hear about mm -hmm. oh, a white Canadian woman writer. But wait, maybe it's black, right. it's African, you're from South, right. you know, it's like oh, let's you know put you in a box, and this is the people you belong to. But the fact is that yes, I wrote a story that you know is set in an African village. My first novel was set in New York City, and if you notice me, exactly. listen to me, you might notice that I have a very fancy accent, which is not American. But the, I, I, I like to just think of myself as a writer. Okay. I think that writing is universal, you know? Mm. I mean, as a child, you know, I mean, I was transported by Shakespeare. Was it because he was writing for an African girl? No. Mm. And mm. I think that we do ourselves a big injustice when we start putting all of these categories. Mm -hmm. Because then they start, you start being expected to talk about certain things, That's or you know, to write about certain things, or to hold certain positions. Right. But that doesn't help representation. Mm -hmm. I think representation is how when there's, you know, like you're allowed to to have a broad space to talk about what matters to you. And like people will say, oh, in Bolo, you, you write about the environment. Did you suffer from environmental degradation in your childhood? No, mm. I never ever had, you know, unlike you, I never, I've been blessed to only live in very clean environments. Mm. <laughs> you know, so mm -hmm. I've never been part of a course, like I said. So none of this has to do with African or not African. This story, that I wrote is happening in West Virginia. Yes. You know, Standing Rock happened. I mean, this story is happening in Asia and Latin America. Right. So to sort of, you know, put it into like saying, oh, this is black or African, it has nothing to do with that. As much as I am very proud to be African, yes. very proud to yes. be black, yes. I, again, focus on the human. I also understand that the issues that affect certain people and my novels, you know, my first novel deals with, you know, issues that affect immigrants, for yeah, example, struggling yeah. to get papers. That is very specific to immigrants. Mm -hmm. So I look at specific issues, like specific characters and what they're dealing with. And I try to talk about characters fighting back against certain socioeconomic, you know, struggles. Right. But it's, I think this, you know, this categorization, I don't know. Yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, how do you feel about you know, being black from Mississippi? I mean, I mean, it's wonderful and, and <laughs> <laughs> that you're black from Mississippi, but do you no, strongly yeah. like hold on to that yeah, as an identity? Yeah, you convince me. I mean, I do. Okay, I, you do. I, I actually feel what you just said in a way that I haven't felt. Yeah, for, for me, I'll just say because black people in this world, but mm -hmm. I'm just gonna talk about my state, have been so targeted, mm -hmm. and that target has like come with this perception that we lack. Mm -hmm. I feel like I need to let like the folks who made me know mm -hmm. that we here. Yeah, and people can call that representing or not, but like, uh, yeah, so right. black Mississippi right. is important. Yeah, you're telling to me. your story. You're telling yeah, your story. Yeah. And, but, 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 but the hard part, what I love what you're saying is like, I don't want anybody from where I'm from to think my story is their story. Like, I right, want people right, to be able right, to tell their right. stories. No, as well, I completely so. agree. So, yeah. I, do we have time for a question or two? Hi, um, thank you so much for this. I actually I have a question for um, Kiesi because I used to work with a lot of um, young black men at my old job. And I actually would often recommend your book, your book of essays, because it was so moving and powerful for me. I guess I'm curious about, like, have you seen, like, the reaction from other young black men about your book or, like, how it's challenged, how we think about masculinity and, like, it's just so many important questions. 
Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just say briefly. You know, uh, thank. You know, again, thank. Thankfully, you know, because of my grandma, my mama, um, wonderful people at Lyceum, you know, folks who I work with editorially, people talk to me a lot. Uh, black men talk to me a lot about about secrets, and I think that the, the thing that I can never get used to is I've said this before, but it never stops happening. And I, I bet it will happen today. The finest brother in the room who looked like he got two or three percent body fat invariably <laughs> comes up to me and whispers in my ear and be like bro like thank you i got a problem can you mm. help me and the old me used to come up with like yeah brother now and i'm like <laughs> i wrote a book like that's about as much as i can do i can listen mm. but if you want to talk to me about body dysmorphia and you want to talk to me about your disordered eating and you want to talk to me about how you feel like if your waist isn't 26 inches i will listen and I'm saying, when 2018, when that book came out, I started trying to do like the fake psychologist. I hadn't even been to therapy. I'm doing some shit I've seen on TV. I'm doing Dr. Melfi from The Sopranos and shit. I'm like, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, a lot of people talk to me. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of black men talk to me. But and 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 but the people I'm most shocked at are the people who appear to look mm. the most together. Mm. And I, and and actually, I'm thankful that, that that there's a space. I just wish that I was. Actually, I think the best thing I can do is listen and tell them where, where they could actually get help, and that's what I try to do, so. Hello. For this question, feel free to have as much fun with it as you'd like, but I'm just curious about how your writing process has changed over your career, mm -hmm. and maybe in some ways that it's stayed the same, for better or for worse. Yeah, I'm not gonna front. Like, I just write what I wanna write now. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think this conversation about environmental racism should also be tied to a conversation about intergenerational poverty. Mm. 10 years ago, when I started writing, well, I've been writing for a long time. 10 years ago, when I started trying to flood mm. the shit with essays, it was just because, like, I needed to get on. You know what I'm saying? I didn't want to be writing all that mm. But I ain't had no money. I ain't had no end. Now I got an end. I got a little bit of money. I can sit down and take my time with some stuff and not feel like I have to jump into, you know what I'm saying? Like the Chris Rock. Like, five years ago, bro, I would have, I would have destroyed <laughs> that essay, you know? But now, I just got other things to do. I got 10 to my hips. I got family that I love. I'm not finna write about everything no right. more. Mine has changed a lot because, unlike you, I never went to um, school to study writing. That's I don't have an MFA. I was that person who sat in their bedroom and would stop, thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to publish it. <laughs> So, I, you know, writing was a hobby for me. I was like, I'm just going to write. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as a publishing industry. I basically just wrote. And then one day I moved to New York City and I met all of these aspiring writers. And I thought, oh, I could get this work out into the world. So I sent it out there. Took three years of being rejected. And then I finally got a, a mm. publisher. So I never had any kind of process. People mm -hmm. always, I'm like, there's no process when it's just your hobby. You have a full-time job and then you write whenever you, are, you want. That was my first novel. My second novel, which I finished after my first novel came out, there was a bit more of a process because mm. then this is a story that mattered to me, so I worked really hard, and I had more of a process. Now this is my third novel. Now the difference is that I'm studying a novel for the first time as a writer. My first two wow. novels I studied as hobbies. You know? That's amazing. I just was like, oh, I love to write. Let me check it out. But now, <laughs> now I'm, you know, I'm called a writer, you know, which is like still amazing to me. I'm like, oh, in Bolombo, you're a writer. I'm like, yeah, I guess. You know? So it's, it's very different now. I'm yeah. amazed that I look at all these writers, book after book. I'm like, wow, this is hard. Like novels are really no, hard. So, hard. So, so So now I have more of a process because I have more structure to my days. For me, the biggest change was moving from this person we just wrote as a, ho as a hobby and because I went to school for, um, for graduate school for education and my plan was to get, an, um, to get a PhD and become a college professor like some of you lovely people. And that didn't work out, and then I some of like fell into writing. I like to say I became a writer because nothing else worked for me. <laughs> so after, now that I'm no longer in that space, I have to change that mind frame of like, oh, now I actually write. And it's kind of like, not that it's taking away the joy of writing because I still love to write, but it's very different now that you know I have, and I'm blessed with a wonderful team, my agents are here and all of that, but it's more of 
okay, now I'm writing. This is not just some play thing that I do on my side. Right. On the side. Right. Um, and the, the good news is that I just, set, I just sent my third novel to my agent on Thursday. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Please clap after she reads it, because if she doesn't like it, there's no need to clap. But, um, so, yeah, it's... But you know, I mean, I don't even think you know how it made people feel in here to, for you to be like, oh, I was just playing around for the first two books. I ain't gonna, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. it was a lot harder than that, I should say. But, but yes. What? But my, the second one, I finished it when I had a team around me, so that helped. <laughs> the first one was mostly on my own. That's amazing. Hello. Hey. Hi. Hi. Um, this question is for Mbolu. Um, I had the pleasure to actually be in Cameroon and be in Limbe oh, and wow. like all those areas. My wife is from there and it's oh. such a beautiful country. Oh. Um, and I was just wondering for you as a writer, do you feel like writing about Cameroon? I know you said that New York was really when you started to like mm -hmm. lean into yourself as a writer. Mm -hmm. You know, do you get a chance to write from home and mm -hmm. connect with home as mm -hmm. a part of your process with writing? Mm. Yeah, so it's funny. I'm actually going to Cameroon in two weeks. You know, I think being there would sort of help me because I don't go back home often. While Cameroon doesn't feature in my novel so much, right? I mean, my first novel is almost all set in New York City, but it has to do with Cameroonian um, family. And my second novel was inspired by my childhood in Cameroon. But I, I think about it a lot because it's no matter, I've, I've been in America for 24 years now. I've mm -hmm. been here for most of my life. You can't, people think I just came because they hear my accent, but I've been here for most of my life. But it's just that thing about being an immigrant, you know, like no matter how long you're away, there's no way you can move past that. Just like you are Mississippi, right? You always carry right. it in you. So even if my work doesn't overtly deal with Cameroon, it is very much about Cameroon also. Yeah. Just like it's very much about New York City, which is my hometown now, as much as my hometown of Limbe. And so, I'm looking forward to going back home, you know, in the midst of writing this third novel because I think that just being there, there's a whole other level of inspiration I have. Yeah. There's a whole other level of understanding myself also, you Definitely. know, <laughs> because a lot of my writing is very, very subconscious, but it's only later that I realized that all of these stories are really about me also. Right. <laughs> right, right. I don't know, maybe I should try therapy to help me sort out, you know, why I have to, like, you know, write a novel to figure that out about myself. But, I mean, yours is probably easier because it is, you know, about your experience. But mine is only later that I realized that a lot of my novel was about me also exploring my own life and my own childhood. And I don't think I have what it takes to write a memoir, but I think that if you know me and you read my novels, you'll see that, like, yeah. you see me all over it. I love that. Yeah, yeah. right. I mean, it, I mean, yeah. you, but you are all about writing about yourself already, right? And you, uh, you, you need to explore yourself like that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of need to explore myself that way. But, yeah, I mean, I, I just have nothing else to say other than that the process, that process you just described of discovering self, mm -hmm. do you feel like there's more to discover? Or you feel like you... The moment you start opening that, you start seeing yourself and you realize the things, again, like this novel, which was very, very painful for me to write, and I just realized that I struggle with a sense of helplessness. Right. I feel so helpless about a lot of things and that that really keeps me up at night sometimes. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah. didn't really accept that, you know, that I am that one of those people that feels so helpless often. And this novel and my first novel, I think that is what it is, is that me coming to terms with that and me coming to terms with how complicit I am also. Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and that was a very hard part to deal right. with, you know, to deal with the fact that you are not this innocent victim, right, you know, in right. many issues that, just like your grandmother, I mean, in bigger ways, you know, as black people, as a woman, you know, as an immigrant, I have had my own struggles being, you know, marginalized, but I also had to accept the fact that I've been very complicit in a lot of other stuff. Yeah. Not that I was aware of it. Absolutely. I mean, do you feel complicit? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely complicit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's my genre. Yeah. <laughs> uh, both of the books that you've most recently written really uh, center around complicated relationships and family to one degree or another. Um, and I'm curious how you both strategize or, or feel into writing the challenges of accountability in, in family relationships and, and what, what's hard about that, what feels easy about that? I was never a writer publicly. I was, you know, writing in a closet, I like to say. And then one day I was outed as a writer, which was very painful for me. I know it would sound really odd, but my mother did not know I was writing. 
right? And then one day I got a book deal and it was on the internet and I called my mother, I'm like, um, <laughs> so I'm actually a writer <laughs> and I have a book deal. And she's like, what? Don't you dare write about me. <laughs> oh. The first thing she said, she was very proud. And she's like, whatever you do, don't mention my name. <laughs> that is part of why like, I don't think I'll ever be able to write a memoir because my mother would like, not be happy about any of it. So that is part of the family issues that like, I can't. And I'm also very private by nature. So I'm very respectful of everybody's privacy around me. That, again, is another gift that I get from being a novelist, is that I can go all out on everybody because I am not, you know, identifying anything, even though some people are like, oh, Mbola, I know that was me, right? People, do, they don't do that. Right, <laughs> they don't, right. They don't like, I knew that was me. I'm like, no, that wasn't you. Oh, no, that was me. You tried to say this about me. No, I'm not trying to say anything about it. <laughs> no. but, but it is... And that is why, again, I try to focus on more on myself right. and more on my process of questioning myself and going through my own process of self-discovery as opposed to writing about other people. But how, how does your grandmother feel about, you know, I'm guessing she's not like my mother, right? She didn't say, don't you just talk about <laughs> me, right? I mean, it's, it's so complicated. You know, my grandmama... Uh, I know you love her very much. Cause oh, I yeah, love yeah. Her. my grandmama yes. definitely yeah, is to, like, like, don't, you know, don't take shit outside the house. Right. But she also was, like... I love that you paid pay for my house. Aww. You know, like, Aww, you know what I'm saying? My mama is a different story. When I hear, when you ask that question, I, I start thinking about my mother. Like, it's, it's different because writers always talk about this. All of our stories and memories are not simply ours to tell. That's right. But I do think that, that one, like, one can gain enough skill and will to tell those stories that are not ours to tell with integrity, with joy, with love. But I don't know if you can do that without talking to the person while mm. you're doing it. I think that gets complicated when sometimes mm. you're talking to people who you know or feel abused you, right? right? Like, I, don't, I would never suggest you need to talk to abusers right. to write your But for me, it was just like, you know, I don't use my mama's name. My mama was my first teacher and we stopped loving each other. So I used the one tool she gave me to try to get us to love each other again. Mm. And don't nobody else in this off, audience have to and be okay with that, right. honestly. And that, that's a new, that's new for me. You know, like for the last three years, I was like trying to convince people that they could see it. Like, I know I loved my mama. I know I wrote mm. that book because I love my mama. Mm. I, I wasn't sure about that for like two and a half years, but you know, I did. And that doesn't mean that I, I loved her as good as I can. Mm. I will do that better in the future. But five years ago, I tried to use the tool she gave me mm. to, to make us um, fall in love again. Mm. And it, it didn't work and then it worked and it didn't work, so. Okay, we done. Well, thank you guys so much. <laughs> we done. <laughs> we done. <laughs> it was such a pleasure, Kiese. <laughs> thank you so much, Mbolo. Thank you, guys. That was Kiese Lehman and Mbolo and Bue in Seattle at the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, AWP's, 2023 Annual Conference and Book Fair in March 2023. The conversation was co-presented by Literary Arts and the Lyceum Agency. Thank you to Miriam, Kate, Hannah, Andrew, Phoebe, and Sada at Lyceum, and to Colleen at AWP for their help making this event possible. Experience conversations like these during the 2023-24 season of Portland Arts and Lectures. Speakers include Zadie Smith, Mary Beard, David Gran, Charles Yu, and Amy Nazakumatadl. To learn more about the season and how to join us at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall for five inspiring evenings, visit literary-arts.com. Org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff Joti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.